This is Half Hour of Heterodoxy, and I'm Chris Martin. My guest today is Rick Manta. He's a professor of psychology at Acadia University in Nova Scotia. His research focuses on the psychology of decision-making, but he's recently begun speaking about issues related to academic freedom in Canada. His talk, Free Speech in Universities, Threats and Opportunities, has received over 4,000 views online. Hi, Rick. Oh, hello, Chris. How are things in Canada? Uh, well, we're living in interesting times. I think that's the most diplomatic way of putting it. You're in Acadia University in Nova Scotia, that's correct? Uh, yes, it is. And you studied at Toronto and McGill? Uh, yes, I did my yeah undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto in neuroscience uh, when it was a new program just starting up over there. Then, yeah, I did my master's and PhD at McGill, spent three years at the University of Winnipeg on a, on a postdoc uh, before coming to Acadia in 2003. So you've seen the whole breadth of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a professor of psychology. You've historically taught introductory psychology and research methods, which are not exactly controversial issues. Uh, no. And your research has been on cognition, numerical cognition, and decision-making. So how did you get involved with issues of freedom and academic liberty? Um. Well, it was around 20, yeah, it was in 2015 that I started noticing items in the news that didn't, that uh, that I found bothersome. So I think the first major one was the events with the Christakis at uh, Yale University. And there was the article in, uh, on Vox uh, that was by the anonymous author saying that um, he fears his liberal students. So that's when I started noticing that something may be wrong. And I wasn't sure if that was just a one-off incident at Yale. But then it seemed to be increasing with frequency and then started and then I was worried about that coming to Canada. And so the probably the Jordan Peterson, uh, when he spoke out, that's when I really started to become concerned and was really keeping an eye on what's happening in the universities to the best of my ability. And did you know Jordan when you were at Toronto? Uh, no, actually, or even at McGill. What's interesting is I started at McGill with my grad degree just as he was leaving. So there may have been overlap, but if there was, yeah, it was minimal and we didn't even have it. I never even got introduced to him. That's interesting. You're actually our first guest from Canada. I've interviewed David Frum, who was born in Canada, but he's American now and he's outside academia. So as our first representative from Canada, do you feel like the situation in Canada is roughly similar? I know one difference, legally speaking, is that there's no First Amendment there. But in terms of culture, it does seem like the culture of universities is similar. Uh, yes, uh, I guess I would not have suspected. I, yeah, I guess my uh, I thought that maybe it was happening at other universities and it wasn't something that was actually happening at Acadia until I did my talk on free speech. And that's when, you know, students would uh, come come up to me and tell me silently that we support you, but that we're afraid to speak up. Uh, so one was even saying that uh, this, uh, the atmosphere at Acadia was worse. She felt more frightened here at, at Acadia than she did in communist China and said she had that feeling that, you know, that there's some kind of revolution in the air, just really that there was a lot of tension, just that it was all going beneath the radar and silent. So did some of that student feedback come before you gave that big talk at Acadia University? Well, it um, 
It started coming after I organized my panel discussion in May last year. So afterwards, that's when a few students said to me, thank you for organizing it. And, and some stories started coming out of the woodwork. And um, yeah, so I had informed the, the VP academic because she'd asked me for feedback on the event I'd organized because she wanted a blurb for the um, Board of Governors report. And so at that point, I did express that there's might be more issues at stake than might be apparent, but I never got an email or, you know, response to that message, you know, to, to meet or follow up. I don't believe that panel is on YouTube. Can you speak a bit about what that panel was about? Uh, it's on my YouTube channel. So if you yeah, so far, there's only two videos there. So if you type, type in Rick Matter Free Speech, and it'll take you to my YouTube channel. So the so what happened was last May when I was first not sure what was happening with the free speech issue, I thought, oh, let's, let's get more information. So I organized a panel discussion. And so the first hour with the actual discussion was went was fun and interesting. It was uh, interesting to hear the different perspectives. That's the first I'd heard of the Tuvel controversy. I had no idea about that. Uh, so that put on the radar in terms of the academic mobbing when it comes to peer-reviewed journals. And it was interesting hearing who, the one person who said, oh, there's no issue of free speech on campus, like it's not a big deal. But then later on, he was saying that I admit to self-censoring self, self and I'm worried about uh, other philosophers hearing, watching this video in case, uh, you know, that comes back to haunt me. So there did seem to be some interesting uh, discrepancies there. So the first hour was smooth, but then the second hour, when you look at the kinds of questions that were asked, I think it speaks for itself because there were just these extended diatribes, but no actual uh, position put forward as what, and here's a, here's a potential problem or, 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 or even here's maybe a potential solution. That's interesting. When I search for your YouTube videos, the first thing that comes up is your big speech called Free Speech in Universities that you gave at Acadia. And then there are a number of interviews with you. God Saad is with the one at the top, but I didn't know there was a panel. I'll have to look that up. So at that panel, you didn't actually have protests per se, but you had very hostile questions. Is that right? Well, they weren't really questions as it was just these ex you know, extended, um, to me, they just seemed like extended rants. I think, yeah, it's best to let viewers uh, watch for themselves. And the talk you gave, it looked like if there was a Q&A session, so this talk, Free Speech in Universities, Threats and Opportunities, it's about an hour and 45 minutes long. It looked like that actually went pretty well, and the student group uh, that sponsored it is still there at Acadia, and the, the Acadia student government, if I recall, also sponsored it. Uh, was there any blowback because of that? Well, it's uh, kind of interesting in terms of what did happen there. So what what got in, included in the audio recording, but not in the video were the questions that were asked. So what I found interesting is that no, almost no faculty members showed up to the talk. So there were only two, and uh, or three in total, uh, two of which asked questions. Um, and both of those are very hostile. And um, so basically the first question... Uh, was about once uh, one or two slides and just saying, you know, those are already discredited, even though those studies had just come out uh, the week prior. And I think, and then that faculty member then took the trouble to email me with a follow-up to say how wrong I was. And what's interesting is that the rebuttals he had given had since been rebutted themselves. Uh, then the other person uh, just discredited the entire talk altogether as just all you did was present anecdotes and the plural of anecdote is not data. So that was her 
uh, criticism. So she was asked about some particular type of study that I wasn't aware of. And so she said on the basis of that, the whole talk should be discredited. And later actually followed up by a public email where she said that my talk was, I think, the worst violation of academic integrity she had ever seen. Mm. Yeah, so that's sort of from the faculty. And then in terms of the student group, I noticed that the newspaper, the way they went about advertising it seemed a little strange to me. They advertised it as if it was a debate, which it wasn't. And on top of that, what was supposed to happen was uh, a discussion was supposed to happen a couple of weeks afterwards to go over the ideas in my talk, and that never actually did materialize. And then for the Acadia Student Union uh, that had uh, endorsed the talk in initially, uh, later on I got an email from the president of the student unions just saying, uh, we supported your talk, but we didn't endorse it. We generally don't go around endorsing events. And so I've kept those emails. So you have received some support from Michael Mercer, the chair of the philosophy department, publicly. But you've mentioned in many cases, it's just people expressing support privately, which I've also heard at American universities. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. So what's interesting is after I did my talk at Idea City, a conference and held in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, uh, there a filmmaker uh, came up to me, a Canadian documentary filmmaker, and she said she'd had no trouble in the past getting drug dealers to appear before her camera and speak about their experiences, but that she was having difficulty getting professors, you know, tenured professors to appear before a camera. So they said that if they did, they, they would be willing to speak, but it was on the condition of having anonymity. So like their faces blacked out and, you know, maybe even their voices altered. I can't remember if she said that or not, but that I think gives you a state of what an idea of what the state of universities is right now. People are afraid to speak. Yeah, that is quite shocking. Um, so in terms of students at Acadia, have they been mixed in terms of their support? Is there a, a faction of students who's pretty supportive, but again, privately? Um, yes. What's interesting is that when I spoke out in the classroom, that's when I started actually noticing what was happening. Because if I just give, let's say, my... Um, overall instructor ratings. So I had 40% giving me fours and fives, 40% giving me ones and twos, and only 20% giving me threes. And normally I don't get that many with ones and twos. Uh, it's like, it would have to be a really bad year. But this was interesting year for that, for the introductory psychology too, which I hadn't taught in 10 years. And so even though I taught it the same way, I, I mean, I spoke about other issues. I just figured try to update it for modern, you know, for modern context, but the reaction that I got was, which was quite strong and visceral and resistant to any disconfirming information. That is something I've never seen before, at least not in that kind of, um, not to that magnitude. Now you've spoken about possible solutions to the problem. Have you tried to implement any of those solutions? Um, well, no one wants to discuss them, so I, there's not, not much I can do from with, within the university. So that's why I started uh, going to social media. And so these days I try to use Twitter as my main feed, main way of uh, communicating with the outside world. Okay. I mean, Canada does have Jordan Peterson and Lindsay Shepard as well-known figures in the academic freedom debate. Um, are there any other people speaking out at universities, let's say, further west, like UBC? Um, apart from Gad Saad, the only other professor I know of who's um, 
quite public would be um, Janice Fiamengo from the University of Ottawa. And I, I believe that Paul Quirk, at, uh, who's in, I believe, philosophy at the University of British Columbia, has been trying to uh, implement change from within his institution and is involved with free speech efforts there. That's interesting. So there's some support, but it's mixed. I know I was at the Heterodox Academy conference last month, and I don't recall meeting anyone from Canada. It was a pretty US-centric event, to be honest. There may have been one or two people from Canada whom I didn't talk to. So in some ways, here in the US, we only hear about these stories from Canada, typically around Jordan Peterson, Lindsay Shepard's another famous case. But it's hard to get a sense of how much political or ideological diversity there is at Canadian universities. Would you say there's at least a certain degree of religious diversity with some religious conservatives and some religious liberals because of the immigration? Uh, it's possible maybe in some of the departments, like let's say uh, theology department or maybe engineering, but I think for the most part, the data that we see in the U.S. are applicable to Canada. Are you planning to do any psychological research either on decision-making or ideological prejudice? Um, well, I did uh, report a study at the Canadian Society for Brain Behavior and Cognitive Science. Uh, so there's a scale called the Bullshit Receptivity Scale. And so the way it's worded right now in the current what's published is there are a bunch of statements, some which are true and then some which are just um, statements of you know, random words put together but are syntactically correct. And so I think the ones they use are, let's say, as an example, are Deepak Chopra's tweets, and he asked people to give ratings of how profound they are. And so for those nonsensical ones, uh, if you give high ratings to those, then that's considered not being able to detect BS. Uh, so when my honor student was doing a project on that scale, uh, she thought, why not just ask people just straight up front, is this BS, yes or no? And uh, what I decided to do is add just one question at the end, which was I added one, the statement, because it's 2017. So the rationale for that is that our prime minister, the Canadian prime minister, one of his first actions was making a gender-balanced cabinet. And when asked why, he said, well, because it's 2015, and that was the response that was given. And I noticed that academics seemed to really rejoice in that response but if you looked at comments on any newspaper article, people thought it was nonsensical. And so I thought, well, let's see uh, what students would say to that. And at the demographic section, I just asked for their uh, political um, you know, orientation. I just used the categories that are on the Headed Rocks Academy website. And so what I found was that the left's progressives uh, classified that did not, only 55% classified that statement as BS. Uh, but people of other orientations, so at least 67% or above, uh, said it was. So I found that rather interesting. And so that's uh, that's something I want to follow up on. Interesting. So are you planning to do any more studies of that type? Or do you have stu graduate students who are interested in this? Well, um, uh, I'm hoping to have, an, if not an honor student, then maybe a student who is willing to do it as a third year project. So we're yeah, we're meeting next week to try to figure out the nuts and bolts. And because what I'd like to do for the follow-up is have a, more statements from the Canadian Prime Minister or from other members of his cabinet and then see what people say. So based on their tweets, because um, what I find interesting here in the Canadian context is uh, people like the academics here will make all kinds of criticism about, the, about Donald Trump and his administration. But 
I haven't heard, a, you know, I've heard next to nothing uh, about our own uh, Canadian prime minister. And of course, when it comes to politics, they're going to make good and bad decisions and, you know, smart and not so great statements. But we are, we haven't really had much discussion about that for our own prime minister. And he's seeming to be getting a pass. So I thought it might be interesting looking at, yeah, within our own context, because it doesn't seem like anyone else is asking that question. Speaking of the prime minister, when you look at the population as a whole, do you feel like the Canadian population is also polarized in the way the American electorate is? Um, I believe it's starting to get more in that direction. It's not something that's that has been that Canada has been like bef- previously, uh, but especially uh, in more recent years, it has become that way. So I think my my impression is especially since. Uh, Justin Trudeau became prime minister. I don't know if any surveys, I'm sure they're out there, uh, but I don't know if any surveys off the top of my head that have looked at that. There's many, many surveys in the U.S. every year about polarization and affective polarization is now a big issue. I know you talked about that in your talk a little, uh, this affective disagreement with the other side or disgust, dislike, whatever you would prefer to call it. Now, uh, in terms of your job. I know you can't divulge too many details, but can you talk about whether people at the university have called for your removal? Um, yeah, the, I guess, yeah, those are the ones you hear from. And I know if they're ones who are, again, who are uh, silently supporting me. Um, but in terms of the facts uh, on that, I, well, what's interesting is that the investigation was, um, you know, the VP academic did sent the letter to me saying you're going to be investigated. And I posted that uh, online. Um, so it's, I guess since then, what I find interesting is that our equity officer uh, resigned over the university's handling of my uh, investigation. So it, it didn't get widespread publicity, but it's in a magazine called Frank Magazine that's uh, that's local, probably to Atlantic Canada. So um, so there it's in the print magazine. Unfortunately, they didn't put their article online, but that is where uh, that's gotten coverage. Um, so I guess that's, I guess, one objective fact I, fact I can disclose because it is out there in the media. And I guess with my courses, uh, so I used to teach the large sections of introductory psychology. And this past year, I was given the second, you know, the second half, whereas probably I think since 2006, I taught the first half almost every year consistently. And last year at this time, I'd gotten two teaching awards for my teaching, uh, but now that course was taken away from me. Uh, So in terms of what's been told to me is that it was just a discretionary decision uh, made by, you know, my department. And that's in my appeal, that's what the dean said, that there was nothing wrong there. All the procedures were followed. There's no, uh, your change wasn't disciplinary in any Kind of fashion. Uh, however, in um, a statement to the Aboriginal People's Television Network, our media spokesperson had said that students who were offended by a tweet I'd made in January would not be required to take uh, courses with me. And in a career development letter that I'd received my designated head, so in a section on deficiencies, uh, he had said uh, concerns about Rick's teaching have been addressed by the change in his teaching allocations. So I guess those are the, the objective facts. So unfortunately, it does seem like there have been consequences. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'll let the listeners decide for themselves. In terms of the panel you just appeared on, if I recall, Lindsay Shepard was also on that panel. She was also at the Heterodox Academy Conference. Who else was on that panel? Um, 
Blunson was a retired faculty member from, I believe it was Queens, and I think he was in English. Uh, the other person is someone who's been, uh, Chris DiCarlo, that was his name. Yeah, so he's been trying to get an academic position, but he keeps just getting these short-term teaching contracts, and he's always having to reapply and is never sure if he's actually going to get the contract. So that's the situation he's in, uh, and it's just for promoting critical thinking in the classroom. And how was the reception? Was or was it pretty hostile? Actually, that one was went over very smoothly. So I was a little worried because a Halifax-based activist had posted about it on her Facebook page, uh, but that didn't gain much traction in Ottawa. I think the other factor that worked in our favor for that event going smoothly was it wasn't being held during the semester. And so I think a lot of the students who would be protesters were gone from campus. Um, yeah, so I think those factors worked in our favor. So there weren't any disruptions or anything like that. And it was held at the Ottawa Public Library and not on campus. So that might have been yet another factor that worked in our favor. Um, but no, it went smoothly. Uh, the questions that were asked by audience members were good and got, again, more public, you know, uh, su public support, I guess, from people. And they'd come talk to me after the panel discussion was over. Can you remember any of the questions you got from the audience and were there any interesting critiques? Um, I guess it's been a, it's a couple of months ago, so I can't remember the details. Just, I think there's a lot of people saying this is not the way I remembered my university years. And, and I'll just say that after the Idea City conference, I had a couple of faculty members who had come from Russia and they'd said that the climate on campus was very much what they would, had tried to escape and just that the the um, you know the, the the top the number of topics you can discuss and then a uh, number of viewpoints that you can actually put forth is getting smaller and smaller so I feel like I can relate to that a little I'm from India myself and I left India around the time Hindu fundamentalist parties were starting to be successful in parliamentary elections um, and my father, well, my family is Catholic, and so my father thought it would be better for me to immigrate sooner rather than later. I had, I eventually had plans to immigrate anyway. And I do remember one of the things that happened during that era was mobs would show up, and even though what they were doing was legally impermissible, the police wouldn't do anything about that. And that was quite disturbing. And one reason I came to the U.S. was the situation, the law and order situation here was better, and in theory... At least you couldn't get away with that sort of behavior. And I do feel like at some universities now, depending on which student group you're affiliated with, you can engage in mob-like behavior and sometimes face no consequences for it. So I see how people from places like China and Russia are also sensing that atmosphere here. So to wrap up, do you have any closing thoughts or would you like to talk about any upcoming panel appearances or articles that you might be writing? Um I guess I just have so much on the plate that I'm, I'm just hoping I can get back to my, you know, my normal work in terms of planning my courses, trying to work on my research and not deal with, um, yeah, I guess the, the way I see it is, yeah, the forms of academic mobbing that are taking place just because of a viewpoint being expressed that people disagree with. And your research is still continuing to be primarily about decision-making, is that correct? Uh, yes, I'm hoping to try to publish some of the work that my honor students had done. So, uh, yeah, the one on the decision-making. Uh, one student had looked at perceptions of singles versus married people. And uh, so oh, I'll 
try to look at that issue. Um, it, you know, do we still still see singleism in 2018 compared to the other research that was the main research that was done? I think back in 2006. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see the results of that. I go to social psych conferences, and uh, maybe I'll see one of those if it's not presented at a personal or romantic relationships conference, but at a social conference. Um, is that where your students typically present? Um, well, typically they'll present within Canadian uh, conferences. So if they have presented, it's been the Canadian Society for Brain Behavior and Cognitive Science. Uh, so in terms of that research on singleism, the, when I was meeting with an uh, honor student trying to figure out what what she might want to do, I just hap- I mentioned that I had a passing interest in that question and her eyes just lit up. And so she was keenly more interested in that than my research on decision-making per se. So I thought that's a form of decision-making, just perceptions of others. So I decided we decided to go with that. And she was very keen. She did, you know, she worked really hard on that project in terms of getting all the literature reviews, letting me know what was happening, planning out the study and a lot of the details. So it really was a true collaborative effort as opposed to some honors theses where they just hand the student a project and they just do the legwork. Well, it's been good having you on the show. Thanks for your uh, work in Canada, and thanks for being a member of Heterodox Academy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I figure, figure it's, this is um, part of my duty as being an academic. You can follow Rick on Twitter at Rick R. Meta. Meta is spelled M-E-H-T-A. And you can find several other interviews with him on YouTube. Half Hour of Heterodoxy is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find us on Twitter at HDX Academy and on the web at heterodoxacademy.org. Thanks for listening.